Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so, so proud and happy to be talking with Franz Wright on, on the line. Call, we're talking to him from Massachusetts. Franz. Hi. Franz, welcome to Living Writers. Thank you. Thank you. Are you there on the farm? <laughs> Franz, I'm here here in the, the studio here uh, at uh, WCBN. <laughs> uh, I thought maybe the Buddhist farm had a radio station. You know what? I would be there if it did, yeah. I think. <laughs> How about you? Would you be? <laughs> I'd like to have a radio station. I'd say all kinds of uh, uh, secret one <laughs> that they couldn't trace. It's I'd say the truth. You know what? I think that the, um, uh, we could really use one of those, and yeah. and I think WCBN is trying to do that as much as um, as much as we can, really. Good. Good. <laughs> one of the last bastions of freedom. You have to radio. be able to swear, though. <laughs> Maybe I know I can't swear. I know. I, we talked about that, Franz. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, actually, maybe after 10 p.m. you can. I'll have to check with the FCC um, uh, code. But um, Franz, before we go any further, uh, talking to you, and you're talking from Massachusetts. We're going to. Well, be... I'm I'm in Waltham, which is about 10 miles west of Boston. Okay, so close Waltham, close to Boston, and and we're going to be hearing new new poems and also prose poems from your latest book, Kinder Totenwald. Um, mm-hmm. And ah, you pronounced it right. Uh, did you take German? Do you know German? Do you speak? Um, my my dad's family is German. Well, yes. So, because my last name is Hetzel, so we both have the same. You got the W right. You got the W sound right. Yeah. Is it is it something? Do you hear? Are people when you're going places? Are they? I don't know. Are they saying? Uh, what? Are you yeah, getting well, strange you know, pronunciations? I mean, not everyone can speak uh, German. I, it's the only language. No, I mean, German and French uh, are the only languages that I'm familiar with, so I, I don't assume that everyone knows German. I know they don't. <laughs> right, right. Um, uh, That's why, partly the title. Uh, I thought it had enough uh, cognate, you know, sort of English-sounding word. Kinder, like kindergarten, children, uh, tote is dead, uh, vault is woods, uh, you can make compound nouns like that in German. I coined that word. And, uh, oh, so this is actually a make-y-uppy then. Up, made right. up word. Okay. And I was told by my old teacher, uh, Stuart Freebert, there at Oberlin College, that, uh, who was uh, acquainted with Paul Ceylon, who was, uh, I'm not sure if you know his work. Yes, yes. Yeah, he's considered one of the major poets of the of the Holocaust and, and of the 20th century. And... Uh, uh, my teacher said uh, he would have approved, so that was like the greatest compliment I think I've ever received. Ah, uh, and and tell tell us a little bit about why you made like the layers of meaning then in, inherent in the word. I'm not sure. Uh, I, I think I have to say from the start the way I said to uh, I was doing an interview for the Huffington Post with Anna Shivani, and I said uh, I need to say right from the start that I don't know why I write what I write. It comes to me and uh, I write it. Uh, I I write what I'm given to write. Uh, But I did have some ulterior motives once I thought of it. It delighted me to think of, uh, I thought it would be very eye-catching. If I was, you know, in a bookstore and I happened to see that title, I would want to get up close and go and puzzle over it. It looks 
I like an object the way German words do, but this one really does. It almost looks three-dimensional. It's a beautiful word. It's mysterious. And yeah, and I thought it would make you know a, a curious-minded person. Uh, I know that I would go. Oh, I have to find out what that means. And uh, <laughs> they're like hooks, grab, grabbing, reaching out, grabbing the potential book buyer. And uh, and you know what? Every book sold is a uh, cheeseburger for me. So <laughs> here, here. <laughs> that's about all. And, uh, yeah. Franz, before we go any further, I'm going to read your short bio in the back of Kinder Totenwald. And and then we'll then we'll we'll go forward, okay? Mm-hmm. Franz Wright's most re- recent works include Wheeling Motel and earlier poems. Wheeling, Wheeling, as in uh, Wheeling, West Virginia. Wheeling Motel. Walking to Martha's Vineyard was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in 2004, and he has also been the recipient of two National Endowment for the Arts grants, a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Whiting Fellowship, and the Penn Volkler Award for Poetry, among other honors. He lives in Waltham, Massachusetts, with his wife, the translator and writer Elizabeth Olkers Wright. And you were recently in Ann Arbor and reading at the Copper Colored Mountain Arts Collective. Beautiful, beautiful place. And and you you were reading some of the poems from Kinder Totenfold. Would you would you mind reading us one? I was uh I I have a I have difficulty uh, I I what I would do I guess is give an example of two short shorter things because I tried to use prose in every single way that I could think of, story, fable, uh, you know, uh, uh, formal things like that, and then other made-up uh, forms. But some, it, it goes from one pole to another. On the one hand, it can be very, very lucid and just sort of very simple-minded and literal, and on the other, it can be very uh, enigmatic, and uh, it approaches what my old teacher, Charles Sinek, used to call the lyrical absolute, where you almost take leave of uh, meaning altogether and depend on the music of uh, the language. So I'll, I'll try reading one of those. It's the very last a uh, uh, prose piece in the book. It's followed by a, there is one lyric poem, one actual verse poem to my wife at the end. Uh, I could read this and then read that. I don't know. Uh, let me try reading this song. Wisteria rain, where is your child mother? This must be the last bee on earth. So you find no more grandeur or mystery here perhaps you neglected to bring any heckling sparrows vast electron cloud of gnats on windless water night blue volume in a language no one reads are we tired yet are you finished debating the blind who insist that light does not exist and have proof of it Nobody's alone. God is alone. If you liked being born, you'll love dying. Thank you, Franz. And then maybe I'll read you, I know, the very first poem in the book, which is equally 
very short, and uh, is in the more is in the lucid. Uh, anybody with a you know sixth grade reading ability ought to be able to read this without any trouble. It's a little strange. It's called uh, Winter Sleep. Uh, I was a boy, and it mentions Minneapolis. I was a little boy in Minneapolis uh, growing up. I was having trouble sleeping. I don't know how long I'd been lying there and listening to the blizzard when I had the most vivid impression that it was a blizzard in Minneapolis in 1959. And I found this disturbing. I knew it would now have to turn on its lamp, get out of bed, and try to write about me. And of course, no matter what it wrote, it would just sound like something it had made up. But in the end, it decided to stay put, turn over, and keep me to itself. I think that was the right thing to do. After all, it was only a blizzard in Minneapolis in 1959. How are you supposed to describe something like me? And when you think about it, why should you try? Why should you even care? And those questions, Franz, those are setting the course for the whole book here. Do you think? I think. You see, I learn about the book from other people. Uh, I don't really know. And uh, there's a there's an almost uh, there's an element of randomness in putting a book together, and there's an element of order. There has to be a balance. But uh, I'll tell you, uh, there are there are times when in these pieces where I simply don't know what they mean. I don't know. And is that when you feel like the writing, that upwelling, that energy, that you're, well, you know it's that, right? I feel that I've stumbled onto some... If, if, it, if the writing rises to a certain level of, uh, in a number of ways, uh, rhetorically, uh, syntactically, if it has a certain kind of music and rhythm... Uh, that I find pleasing. And all kinds of uh, qualities have to be present all at the same time. And then you go, okay, I'm in this voice, and I can uh, start to... Uh, it gives you a few lines, uh, usually. I get a few lines, and I go from there. I uh, branch out, and I try... It's as if I were trying to do a translation of someone said of a non-existent text. It's, it feels, I can sometimes actually see how long the poem will be, uh, what form it will take, like four-line stanzas, or whatever, whether it will be uh, 15 lines long, uh, things like that. Uh, and then I get the words to fit the form. And you see, and you almost have this, this, this sense of it. Then, Franz, is well, that what you're saying? Well, I've been doing it for I've been doing it for 42 years. Yes. And uh, after you have to learn something in 42 <laughs> years, uh, you would just have to. And I, I've learned a lot of tricks about uh, how to. Uh, I feel at this point, only really, only in the last couple of years have I felt that I have something to say about what I'm writing. Usually it was just whatever was given to me. I just had to uh, do the best I could with wherever it comes from. It, uh, you know, you have the sense that when I write something that I know is good, I know very well 
that I'm not intelligent enough to have written that. I have a sense of some more intelligent, happier person uh, telling me what to say or speaking through me. I, I really do. It's not my normal voice. But, but coming from you, and so is it, so is it part of it? It's some of it seems it's like it always will be rooted in mystery. Well, no, it it, accumulated? it's the voice of it's often the voice I think of the person you would like to become, or mm. the person you're afraid of becoming, or uh, I think some writers like Samuel Beckett have written almost exclusively in the voice of someone they were deeply terrified of becoming, like a bum, a homeless bum. Uh, many of his characters are, and I think he was afraid uh, at many times in his life that he would end up that way. Uh, there are poets, uh, I feel, I'm doing both. I will go back and forth between, uh, habitually I'll go back to darker times in my life and write in that voice, but I also strongly uh, feel that I need to write in the voice of the person I could be, the higher person, you know, the better person that we can all be. And it's it's hard to talk about that, Franz, isn't it? Because well, I don't find it difficult. No. I, I, I'm, a, I'm often accused, I use the word accused, uh, of being part of the confessional poets. I, I don't oh. really know what that means. Well, I do know what it means. It was a group of poets writing in this country in the late 50s and early 60s, such as Robert Lowell, Sylvia Plath, uh, John Berryman, uh, and Sexton, a group of, certain group of poets, that I was not even born. Well, I was. I was a little boy. I had nothing to do with. Uh, you know, I want to ask them, is Wordsworth a uh, confessional <laughs> poem? Is anyone who uses the word I in a poem? So I made up a term, the mask of the first person. Uh, uh, Rambo said yes. uh, the, the, one of the things, one of the foundations of modern poetry I, he said in a letter, I is another. I is someone else, in effect. It's a, it's a mask. When you say I, now why is a poet not as free as a fiction writer? Right. When you read a novel, you go, did that really happen to that person? <laughs> but when you read a poem, you think every word is uh, autobiographical and absolutely literally true. And people are startled to find uh, they meet you and they have a conception of you. And often you can see that they're uh, surprised. Uh, they picture you in a different way. Uh, I don't see why a poet shouldn't be able to slip into different uh, roles. And uh, uh, the greatest poet in the English language was Shakespeare was pretty good at that. And uh, <laughs> uh, it's something a poet should... Yeats wrote about wearing all the masks, knowing what all things are like, uh, what it's like to be all kind of different people. Uh, not just me. And Whitman had the idea that if you go deeply enough into the personal and if you're honest with yourself, you'll break through into the universal, what's yes. universally true uh, for everyone. If you know yourself totally, you will know everyone. So there's that idea. That's a theory. And that's that compulsion to even keep, like, part of that keep writing, to to attempt to know 
yourself I don't know to know whether uh, the compulsion to continue writing is kind of a uh, an illness almost. I think uh, it is a compulsion. You use the word compulsion, and I think in some ways it is a clinical compulsion. Uh, uh, something you just have to do in order. I know it's true of me. I'll speak for myself. Uh, from the from the very start, and I was about 14 or 15, I got a feeling that I needed to have again, and uh, it got to be so that I had to have that feeling uh, no matter what happened. You know, like I had to pursue it. And that's when you when you were 15. That was about the yeah. time when you yeah. found poems. Yeah. I started to write, yeah. And, and what were the ones, like, what, what were you, because you said um, a few moments ago, Franz, that you were, um, what was given to you. <laughs> so you were making well, a distinction between a lot of things the higher yeah, Given to you from your, your particular, what's dealt to you in your particular right. life, uh, your background, what you read. Uh, uh, sometimes people forget that uh, uh-huh. to be a writer, you might want to do some reading. Uh, I, I've had students in the past who have told me they don't read. It might influence their style. I said, you have no style because you do not read. Uh, you know, reading is, uh, why would someone want to do something that they didn't want? Uh, you know, like an art. I mean, why wouldn't they take up something else that they didn't, you know, it's bizarre to me. Yeah. yeah so I was always a big reader as a child, and then suddenly I start, found myself writing. I never expected to. I thought I was going to be a musician. Oh, really? Well, they're close. I think poetry and me, poetry is closer to music than it is to prose in some ways. Yes. Uh, ex- unless you're talking about this kind of prose which seeks to... Uh, to be poetry, uh, which longs to be poetry. Uh, and what and what's that, Franz? What do you mean by the, well, the, the, prose the so-called poem? prose poem? Yeah. And I don't like the term. I, I I'm sure that at the beginning, when it was more or less coined by Baudelaire, I think. Yeah. Uh, he's not the first one to do it. He he. There was somebody before him. He was copying, but. Uh, uh, he gave, I think he made up the term. It's a wonderful oxymoron, fantastic. But it doesn't have any punch anymore. A prose poem doesn't mean anything anymore. I just, uh, I, I was tempted to just call the book Poems and then have someone uh, open the book and, and go, it's prose. And then gradually it would dawn on them what I meant, that, that, that this is poetry. Yes. Uh, the, poetry is not just a matter of, uh, you know, kind of gimmicks. Uh, meta. You need to have a mastery of English prosody, but uh, poetry is, uh, is a kind of music. Uh, there is a point where language does turn into a kind of, you know, it has a sound dimension, uh, like music, like singing. Uh, in fact, poets, poems were sung. In the past, it would have been unheard of to speak a poem. Uh, they're the lyrics of a poem. They're called lyric poetry. For, and uh, there's a song, there's a, the music inherent in language, and you need to dig it out and stick it, glue everything together to bring it out, to bring <laughs> this uh, magical side of language out. And that's why maybe the, the, then the, the second to the last poem, the one that you actually read to us first, right. was you, you titled it Song, and you said it's right. these lines are trying to find 
their way into the music in a way, and then well, you turn the they, page. They kind of lift off it, not all, not all the way, but there are some that are much stranger. They really lift off into a state that would leave behind all rational paraphrase. You would not be able to paraphrase them. The one I read, you that you could and you couldn't. Now, how do you paraphrase uh, wisteria rain? Where is your <laughs> child, mother? I just heard that in a dream, oh. uh, and I used it uh, to start a poem. I don't know what it means. It doesn't mean a- it really doesn't mean anything. Literally, it sounded it sounded like the key to something mysterious that I would never really understand, but that was real. And uh, uh, it wasn't just gibberish. It was uh, sounded real somehow to me, but I don't know what it means. And that also might be like a reason why it's towards then the end of the book, because it's still opening. Well, there's it's plenty not, of other places all through the book where this happens in a much stranger way than that. Uh, that's nothing. Uh, and then, like I say, there are places where it's perfectly uh, literal and straightforward. It goes back and forth. Uh, there, you, you, I think of this book more in symphonic terms. Uh, I had the sense after a while that there were certain uh, motifs that kept recurring, and there were uh, quietness, a speeding up in time, a slowing down, all kinds of qualities that one associates with music. uh, I started to feel I was dealing with. In in one piece, one of the longer pieces, I, I started to literally feel that I was counting each syllable of the, you know, I knew where each syllable was and why it was there, every stress. Uh, and are you saying it out loud, Franz, then, at this point? Uh, I, I do that when I'm alone. I, I walk up and down and say, recite out loud or to the cat, uh, you know, uh, uh, lines. Or I sit silently and mutter them to myself. But it's always a matter of counting. Of uh, I'm counting beats. I'll, I never write a line. That's why I say it's a kind of a compulsion. I cannot write a line of verse or prose in which I am not absolutely aware of the number of stresses of beats and the number of syllables and so forth, uh, the length uh, that it's going to be by the ear, not by the eye, like, you know, I'm going to make it this long and then the next line. I do it by the ear. Uh, you know, so that it's certain to be genuine uh, and not just prose with arbitrary line breaks. You know, there's a reason lines are broken where they are for those who know something about English prosody. And it's a neglected study, I think, sometimes, and that produces midi- very mediocre poetry. When you, I, I, I actually love how you said this, like a line would come to you in a dream. And I, w- I was reading how you also seem to use walking as part of the process where there might I, even be... I sadly, uh, I'm having trouble with that. I'm having oh. a uh, medical, a very serious medical condition, which is making it difficult for me to walk. But oh. uh, I'm getting it back. Uh, I spent a lot, I spent a year uh, being treated pretty roughly. And uh, uh, intensively, and uh, it left me kind of a wreck. But uh, I have something in me that always seems to make a comment.
sometimes it shocks me. I'm so thin, you know, but uh, I can hardly look at myself in the mirror. But uh, I'll get it back. Uh, I'm, I'm starting to exercise again. And walking, yes, is the greatest joy when it comes to uh, just for its own sake. Uh, there are cities that are wonderful to walk in. I love walking in the country, I, anywhere, uh, because you can be solitary. You see, I see people walking around now with their ear glued to a cell phone, and I think, my God, I used to leave the house to get away from the telephone. Uh, you know, it was a form of solitude to me, and I think I'm deeply worried that uh, there are generations of kids growing up thinking that you must constantly be talking to someone at every moment. We're always thinking about checking your phone. I see them. I've seen college students doing that. You're talking to them. They're, they're not with you. Mm. They're with uh, whoever's on their, uh, their plastic machine there. And uh, they are depriving themselves of God knows untold uh, the wealth of uh, quiet, silent, solitary state in which you can hear into yourself. There's an inner stream of uh, conversation going on that you can dip into, but they are constantly distracted from that. That is another reason, that plus the ubiquitous MFA programs, two reasons why I believe no real poetry will come out of uh, the generation presently and uh, the one before it. I think someone's going to have to realize that poetry's going to hell and uh, uh, and do something, uh, get you know angry, uh, the way people are getting angry politically, and do something about it. Well, well, I think it's connecting to to what you said earlier, Franz, about. At trying to know the higher self, even because if there's this cacophony of there other is a, uh, there is a there's a there is a definite analogy, and it is only an analogy. It is not literal, but it is an analogy uh, that a poet, any artist, uh, unless they're artists who work dance or theater who work with other. I mean, a lot of artists, painters, uh, writers, for sure. Uh, writers definitely uh, cannot do their work unless they have a profound uh, attachment to solitude because it requires hour after hour after hour of being by yourself. That drives some people crazy. And if you cut down on the tolerance that you have for being alone, you are destroying yourself as a writer. So any young person who aspires to be a writer, uh, to give it some thought, uh, you will not be a writer if you do not cultivate solitude. It won't happen. You won't hear the upwellings, as you said, the good word, from uh, the unconscious. Franz, we're going to take a very short break, and we'll be right back to talk more. Okay. Today on Living Writers, Franz Wright, Kinder Totenwald, uh, his latest collection of poems. And we're, we're going to hear some um, new poems, new work, um, when we come back. Uh, we'll be right back. Night Flight Turbulence. Some things need to be done in the dark by your 
yourself. I'm not saying it's right. In the greenly lit restroom, I looked pretty ill, like a vampire locked in a confessional. The drug had no effect whatsoever, maybe slightly more arctic and fearful. Angel of meetings long despaired of, poor girl. We could put something together to eat or watch an old movie. You and me, friendless, in this winter city, glimpsed for a minute as far off lights passing under the wing. Just two more cripples Jesus never got around to. theory says we won't remember dying any more than being born. Where can you go at this hour? Stay with me. WCBN. You've got living writers on WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. Today on the program, I'm speaking with Franz Wright. Um, his his latest book of poems, Kinder Totenwald. Um, Franz, uh, welcome back to the program, because you're, you're joining you, us. Thank you for probably playing my... Uh uh, I don't know how the engineer managed to do that so fast that's to get Bri- that record. That's that Brian Delaney. from a uh, CD, my my big CD, uh, uh, Readings from Wheeling Motel. Wheeling Motel is a book of poems in 2009. It's 20 poems that I recited and some musician friends of mine from Los Angeles one of whom, Michael Rosan, who's very accomplished, uh, produced bands like the Melvins, who were uh, yes. who were there with Kurt Cobain going to high school and, uh, and being in bands and uh, big uh, in that scene up there, and uh, an accomplished musician. And when I had a uh, review in the New York Times book review, which is what sells a lot of books, uh, we looked, we happened to peek at the Amazon uh, charts, music charts, and I was, for one day, I was number 11 on the ambient music uh, uh, charts, the top, uh, whatever, like almost top 10, uh, one day, I was like uh, like a rock star. Lucky number 11, I think, that's one of my favorite numbers. Yeah, that was beautiful, and you could really feel the your voice as as the lyric. That's one of the more successful ones. I I just think they, I, I I'm very skeptical when people set poetry to music, but this is just he really he really picked up them. Whatever it is the poem's trying to express, that mood, that that music definitely uh, accompanied it correctly and, uh, so did I you 
did you go out and actually read with him? No, as no, the no. Uh, one of them, Daniel Ahern, who's in a band called Ill Lit, they named their band years ago after a book of mine. Yes. I, I had a book called Ill Lit, uh, selected in uh, poem, in new poems, and uh, we got in touch. And uh, uh, he's a wonderful, wonderful band. Uh, he's a very, very gifted uh, alternative type uh, rock band. You know. Like, I know a couple of them. Another one is Clem Snide. I have a track on their last uh, record called, uh, their record is called Hungry Bird, if there's any Clem Snide uh, fans out there. That's right, Encounter at 3 a.m. Right, That's the right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm um, very proud of that. Uh, I, I, I really want to reach uh, an audience that is beyond uh, beyond outside the literary uh, world. The literary world is disgusting. It's filled with uh, all kinds of strange, uh, strange psychic disturbances, envies and hatreds and different schools. And it's like a war right now. I don't, I don't understand it. How, how do you navigate it then? Well, for me, I was so fortunate. God made me a, a very troubled lunatic who could not hold a job. So I was kind of on the outside of uh, society in a lot of ways. Uh, uh, I did, I did have, uh, I did teach for five years at Emerson College uh, in the eighties, uh, part time. I couldn't have taught full time, and. Uh, I've had uh, different jobs here and there, but mostly I, I got very fortunate with uh, awards. They kept me going in the 90s, uh, Guggenheim and so forth. And uh, then uh, there were a few pretty bad years. Uh, again, I've had some years when I was so broke that uh, friends had to help take care of me, and uh, they did. Uh, and I try my best to help my friends uh, with uh, with a place or with money uh, when they need it. And, uh, uh, because I, I wouldn't be here if people didn't help me. Uh, poets are in a... You try to be a poet. You try to be a full-time poet in this... Uh, I do not know another poet of my generation. I literally do not know a single poet of note who does not teach in a university or school. And I shudder when I think of a future in which they look back and say, just think, they're poets. Poets! High, it suggests something, you know, subversive a little bit. Their highest ambition was to be, was to live in school forever. No. To yeah. me, it's a nightmare. Uh, you know. So uh, I'm glad I missed out on that. And so I didn't really know what was going on, so it was easier for me to stick to my own development that's the point you need uh, i think a writer uh, ideally would not publish a book till he or she was 40 years old uh that you would spend this entire long incubation gestation period uh until you found out found the what the secret of writing which is to write the way you would use language if you were speaking pound said to yeats never write in a poem anything you would not actually say to another human being, albeit under the stress of great emotion. Uh, he meant, use language the way we use it now. Don't 
speak in the 19th century or Elizabethan English. It's right away you've ruined the effect of, you know, the greatest poets have always known to speak in the language that people actually use. How else can you touch them? How else can you move them or inspire them? A lot of poets aren't interested in inspiring people, uh, strangely. Uh, I I would think that that was the job of poets in some ways, to inspire people. There are whole schools like the Language School of Poetry where technique is all. It's a kind of robotic... uh, uh, No one will ever cry reading a a language poem, for example. It's uh, very strange uh, to me. It's very alien. But I was out of it. I didn't know what was going on, thank God. And so in that way, you that's how you shaped well, you your know, vision. Think, think about it. You're tw- in your early 20s, one of the most self-conscious, yes. <laughs> uh, terribly, pain, excruciatingly, the need to be loved is so overwhelming, the need to fit in, to conform, no matter what you say, you need terribly to be uh, affirmation. And uh, you can go looking for it in places that are quite lethal. Uh, that yeah. may destroy you uh, in some ways. Uh, uh, just I went to a. I taught once one semester in a, in a graduate workshop in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Wonderful school, wonderful town. I loved it there. Uh, and I love I, I love universities and colleges. I want to get it straight. I love scholars. I love people who teach. Uh, uh, I can hardly imagine a greater. Uh, thing to do than to be a teacher, and I know how good it feels to introduce people to new great things. Uh, it's a great high. But writing poetry is not a degree subject. The very idea that I would be getting a degree for writing poetry would make me shut down completely. And I had a student who showed me work that he had done that was marvelous first year, then he was told by his peers there that, no, 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 that's not the way we do it currently, fashion, not fashionably. We do it this way. So he tried to write that way, and it didn't work out. It was crummy. But I had to tell him, it's just crummy. He was crushed. I mean, he had to get he had to get his degree, but of course they give it to anybody who pays their tuition. Uh, so that you buy one. But and uh, uh, it's like, but how did uh, you I, make? And he, his, he. I said, can you go back to writing? Right. And he could not. Oh. It means that what Rilke said has been proven uh, that you can destroy your connection to the subconscious for writing by being too early immersed in a group of other writers who don't know anything either. And then it becomes a contest of power. Who has the most charismatic personality, uh, things like that. And you may lose, if you have a talent, you may lose it. But hopefully there might be that way back to find find this your secret writing. I don't writing. think there is. Like the well, because you were because Franz, you were inspiring me when you said like what it is is to find your secret of writing. That's right, and you're not doing that when you're sitting in. Twelve blind people sitting in a room are not going to discover any of the secrets about light. I'm I'm sorry. I I do not mean to use blind people as a 
flightless people as a uh, it's a, it's tasteless of me to use them as an as a an example. All I mean is people who do not know what they are doing, the traditional you know use of the word blind and. Uh, are tr- blind people leading blind people, uh, like Gates said, into a ditch, you know? Uh, and uh, there's, uh, it cannot work. It will not last. It is a scam, a capitalist scam on the part of the a- academic world to make money. You have students who are glad to teach lower-level courses in English and get paid one quarter of what they would have to pay a trained teacher. Then you get students who are being taught by a person with no training as a teacher. The fact that you are a good writer and publish a book, does that mean you're a good teacher? No. And uh, uh, you may be, but it's uh, likely that you're not. You have no training. How are you going to go about it? In Franz, I because and you, like you make a good point because some people are just sometimes you trying to make your money ends to meet. be taught by someone who has no training as a teacher. That's all I'll say. But now, by I, saying these things in public, by exercising what I understood to be my God-given and constitutionally guaranteed <laughs> right to say what I think. Amen. Well, I broke the first rule of correct adult behavior. Never say what you think (laughs) if you want to eat and have a place to live. We all know that. (laughs) But in reality, you cannot say what you think. But I don't give a damn. I salute you. After a certain point, I didn't care. And uh, uh, I stopped caring. I stopped sending my stuff out. I said, I will just write. In secret, when I die, they'll find it, and they can decide whether it's any good. Uh, so how did it get I, out, Franz? What happened? What? I won the Pulitzer Prize. But who, okay, but, okay, but what was that moment where it was all in secret, and then, yeah, what? From one moment to the next, a phone call on April 5th, 2004, <laughs> in Fayetteville, Arkansas, my life was set on a com- trajectory that is good. So opposite to the one I was at 51, I was used to, that it was very frightening and disorienting to me, and I had a hard time dealing with it. So what I had happened? no practice in it, and I never expected it. I know people who have received that kind of critical scrutiny since they were in their 30s, and uh, they were used to it. I had to learn fast, and I made many mistakes. But I've tried to turn them around. For example, uh, I was the laughing stock at Poetry Magazine for several years, and it caused me great pain. I wrote to them, I was angry about something or other, wrote to them four not very well thought out emails in a row to the editor thinking this is not a letter. Also, I am told or have read that you do not publish a letter unless asking permission, calling the person. That never happened. He published them as if they were four fired-off messages from a lunatic, and all the little kitties had a lot of fun laughing at me for several years. Now, I have been accepted four times in the last couple years at Poetry. In their next issue, they will be announcing, and I can say this, uh, they told me, uh, I'll be receiving their highest prize, which is the prize given for the best poem 
published over an entire year. And they publish some pretty hot people. Yeah. This means you are, uh, you're the king of the cats for a minute. You know? <laughs> I'm I'm glad, Franz. And hey, it was talking about sort of the king of the cats of poems. Um, before we came on the air, you had said there's this poem um, that that you've written more more recently. Um, could we hear that one? Would oh, you? Oh, right, right. We were you, talking about. I have. Because you're on fire the last couple of yeah, years. Yeah, I am. I've written three books in uh, two years, and I'm, it's killing me. Uh, if I have to finish soon because uh, I, I don't have the strength to go on anymore. But uh, I'm going to. I'm still getting some good ones, and I believe this. To me, this. I don't know if it's the best one. It's my favorite of all. I've written hundreds of them. Uh, Sixty-five were in. Uh, this last book. Uh, this is my favorite one. There is a peach tree growing in my backyard. Now, that would not be odd if you were in Georgia or something, but in New England, I mean, it is a anomalous, anomalous situation. Uh, what is a peach tree doing in New England? I, it made me feel like myself. Now, I've always, I've lived in the Boston area and in New England for. Uh, longer than I've lived anywhere in my life, and I've moved all over all my life. But I've lived 15 places, even in Boston, and uh, I consider myself a resident alien. Uh, uh, I do. I feel like an alien, and uh, I I identify with an alien. And uh, and this peach tree. Yeah, the peach tree was an alien. So anyway, <laughs> it's called Peach Tree, and it gets into there's a passage. I will warn you that now there's no need to be alarmed because it's quite tender and uh, very beautiful, actually, but there's an erotic element uh, towards the end of the poem. It is not uh, offensive in any way. Peach Street. Winds are blessing one by one the unlighted buds of the bent peach trees. Unnoted return. This is spring. At First light, gray, I stand beside the tree, my height. Such fragile branches as of bark-covered glass. How did we ever survive, find our way home, and take up again our alien stand here, reappearing at the tip of one of endless branching roads, a dead end finally, one of quiet, addresses where I would endure five more years lying low survive until I didn't I'd often wondered where it would happen so one more northern spring has been given me too frail peach tree you look good you look like you could go on doing that forever I have no more idea what I look like than you do I am happy to say all of that is over that business with the mirror. One lifelong winter afternoon, I noticed it had stopped. I couldn't anymore. That was all. Wish I'd thought of it sooner. Trembling with the effort not to break between thumb and forefinger, this one hidden branch I identify with and am trying to lift and lower my eye to. Leaves receding as I reach out 
some force inside me pushing them away, maybe. I hope not. I hope that isn't so. Because I long to touch polish frictionlessly a velvet row of greenest dark beginnings infolded uh, growths destined to develop into nothing more than stunted fruit stripped from their boughs overnight by blackbirds. I wish I could go inside one of them, past the tough rind into one of identical pink erect closed eyelid colored buds, curl up the size of a comma, and wait there for the softly sifting wind to find me, lift me. Wait there along with everyone else in the darkness before we were born. How did we ever drift into this chill state? I'm feeling kind of backbent myself, and I see us both bound for the fire long peach tree, then nothing, then pure spirit again. Even Lazarus has to die. What have I done? What have I been so afraid of all my life? So that's that. Thank you. And I'm very pleased with that one. I wrote it a hundred times. I had a kid write to me on Facebook and say, you take weeks to write poems? Uh, if I had to take weeks to write poems, I'd just throw it out and start on something else. And I said, I didn't want to humiliate him, but I said, my God, I routinely spend years on a poem. I have a poem in my new book that took 30 years to write. Uh, I put the dates underneath it. Oh, yes. And it's a one-sentence piece. Uh, it boiled down to that. That was it. 30 years, I carried that around with me. Uh, I do that a lot. I'll use things I had in notebooks 20 years ago. I'll, I'll plug them in. Uh, yeah. And I'm lucky to have a good memory. And and um and a way of of. Um, you hear the one line. Uh, yeah, yes, please. It's called, uh, used to be called knife. It's called blade. Now, if I stare into it long enough, the point comes when I don't know what it's called anymore. Condition in which lacerations are likely liable to occur like a slip of the tongue. When a single drop of blood might billow in a glass of water, blooming in velvet detonation and imparting to it the colorless, tasteless, and sourceless fear in which I wake. And so since 1975, Franz, this poem you've been carrying with you? 75, yeah. Uh, and does that mean that's like, when you're saying that, are you, you're yeah. walking around with it and did you feel like it was something that was still like you were uh, well, I store them up yes i do i store them in notebooks individual lines and stanzas not connected to fragments and i keep them swirling around in my uh, in my head and when i find a place to plug one in it's all there uh, 
That seems to work for me. Yes, and it doesn't seem like plugging. Actually, it seems more. Yeah, um, I don't natural. want. I want them to seem seamlessly. Yes. Part of you know, and I do my best. It's a magic trick, though. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> writers will get around, and you know, they, they you know, it, it comes again out of doing it so much. Another thing I suggest to younger writers is translation. I cannot imagine a better way to learn about how a poem is made. If you translate a first of all, it's a very wonderful way of reading the poem as closely as possible. You think about each word. And the second, uh, it's like taking apart a watch or an engine or something and putting it, having to put it back together again. Uh, you learn how it's made. And you and Elizabeth have recently translated Valsna. Zina mm-hmm. Mort? No, that's a that's a misunderstanding. Valgina uh, Mort from Belarus. Yeah. It's a great misunderstanding. Oh, we, no. That was not a case of translation at all. They used my name uh, to sell the book. Uh, oh. What, Frankly, uh, what I did do... You met her in Ireland. very important. Did you? Uh, is that I helped her uh, render her not quite their English into idiomatic English. Um, uh, okay. I, I, you know, uh, I, frankly, I was of the opinion that she should wait if she's going to write in English until her English is better. But uh, it's very difficult to write in another language. Uh, poetry is reveals the secrets of its own language, and it must be very frustrating to write in a language that nobody else really speaks uh, so she almost has to I, I think if it was me I'd write in Belarus and translate it then into English but uh, anyway so I have my wife is a very accomplished literary translator who who concentrates on Turkish German uh, emigrate writers in Germany and is doing one Zafir Zanacek who's very famous in Germany as a journalist and uh, uh, she's the one uh, I've done it from time to time through, throughout my life just for pleasure you know and did you do it as a young poet Franz because yeah. I, yeah, I started when I was uh, in fact my father and I did one a Hermann Hesse book of poems together when I was still in high school oh was that the wandering was that yeah. Yeah. Oh wow! That okay. Came I came out in 1972. Helped pay my tuition through uh, expensive school. That's that is an uh, that was an important book for me. At a certain point, I I mm. wanted to even pass it on to someone, and then I actually mm. I couldn't. <laughs> you know what? Remi- you know what? I recently realized what he's doing. He writes a prose. My father did the prose, and I did the poems, and. Uh, then we kind of like work together, like he said, and uh, uh, I realized that it's very much like a form used in, uh, uh, I don't know, 1600s, 1500s in Japan when you get a poet like Basho. Oh. He writes in a form called a haibun, which means uh, 
a diary-like entry in prose, setting up the situation, the context, and then showing the poem that was the result of that situation. Very beautiful, very moving. And uh, Hesse, obviously, he was immersed in Eastern studies. And Germans are very fascinated with anything Chinese. And Chinese poetry leads to Japanese poetry. And... uh, I think that's what Hesse was doing in that book. He would write a diary-like entry, then he'd write a poem. And that was, uh, I, I never realized that until recently. And, and, you, were, and you were translating the, the poem piece of it. Yeah, not very well either. That, that's a book that makes, that's a cringe, uh, for sure, cringe uh, experience if I see that book. Uh, well, to, for I someone... Was 16 or something, 17. Wow. Well, very bad, very bad job. But your 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 father must have trusted you. Well, yeah, a, they did. Uh, the amazing. editor at Forrest Rouse and Drew, which is, uh, and my father felt that it was good enough. I don't think they were, you know, pitying me. They had to publish the book. I think my father touched them up a little bit. Uh, but they, they, I'll tell you the truth, they aren't very good poems. They, they, you know what? That's the problem. Uh, now, my father did another book, Just of Poems, which is magnificent, magnificent. Of course, he saved the good ones for himself, you know. And uh, these just aren't very good poems, frankly. They're kind of corny. Well, you know what? Maybe I was corny because I read it when I read it in my 20s. That's, sure. I really. That's when, that's when people love Hesse. He's one yes. of those writers. My father even says that in his introduction to one of the Hesse books. What is wrong with that? Think of all the wonderful writers, including somebody like D.H. Lawrence, who are most read when we are young, uh, most loved when we're young. When we get older, we feel, well, you know, we see the flaws, but uh, we're madly in love with them when we're young. I think that's a great thing to do, to inspire younger people. Oh, yes. And and is... is is Rilke someone that stays with you, though, Franz? Yeah, I think he, also he stays inspires. with everyone. It's like saying, does uh, <laughs> you know? Uh, you know, there are certain poets uh, that we are writing like them, even if we do not know that poet. We've reached that point. William Carlos Williams. People write routinely, use line, use technical uh, effects that that that. Uh, W.C. Uh, Dr. Williams uh, uh, inve- you know, invented in, uh, uh, as one of the earlier mod- modernist, early 20th century poets. Friends. And I've asked students, and I know, they do not know his work. But, and yet they were writing in his style. His way, his way. Um, Going towards what, what the most honest thing inside of us, to write. Um, Franz, I'm not sure what you mean by that. <laughs> I think it can be a way of being, uh, of dissembling, of, uh, of not in a sinister way, but oh. uh, of being other people, of wearing masks. Uh, I don't, I don't see poetry as self-expression. I see it as an attempt to express something universal. Um, yes. Yes. That what is honest in in each of us, I think. Uh, I I don't think anybody is capable of very much honesty. It would be too hard. Uh, Eliot said human beings cannot bear very much reality. 
And I would say uh, honesty as well. I think we constantly, you know, the, the way we look in a mirror to, to our own advantage so that we look best, you know, uh, that's how we mostly, uh, that's what we call honesty, I think. Well, Franz Wright, as honest as I can be, I've loved speaking with you this hour. Thank you so much. Did that go by already? It's yeah. gone by already. Wow. And so if you'll stay on the line, I'd love to say goodbye, a quick goodbye sure. to you off air. Sure. And thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you. Fra- Sorry I talked so much. I didn't let you talk very much. Next time we'll interview you. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Franz. But that was the point anyway. <laughs> You've been listening to Living Writers today, Franz Right, his his latest Kinder Totenwald. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Daily Sports Report on WCBN 88.3 FM Ann Arbor. I'm your host, William Gregory, here joined by Charlie Brigham, Connor Eargood, Kendall Spencer, and Matt Levy. Um, just as a prerequisite for everyone listening. We are pre-recording this on Zoom on Tuesday at 8.30 p.m. So we do not know the results of the NL playoff games yet. The Brewers and the Braves are tied, and the Dodgers game hasn't started yet. So I wanted to get started. We saw the Astros beat the White Sox 10-1, to and they are moving on to their fifth straight ALCS, only the Oakland Athletics of the early 1970s and the 1990s Atlanta Braves have ever done that. This is a rematch of the 2018 ALCS. So I'll get started with anyone um, having any thoughts about that matchup. Uh, I I guess I'll go first. Um, I I don't know. I mean, obviously, as, as a Yankees fan, I you know, despise the Astros and just, I mean, as a baseball fan in general, you know, we don't need to get back into the whole cheating scandal. There's just not a great look for the franchise and the baseball in general. But I mean, like I said, Houston took the series three to one and just going into the ALDS, I expected it to be a lot closer than it actually was. I mean, the one game that the White Sox did win, they kind of beat up on them. I think they won like 16 to six or something they they won by a pretty big margin but throughout the series like the white Sox just didn't look like the white Sox that we saw all season 